0: Fresh Economic Thinking Podcast, New
1: Ideas and Analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Welcome back to the Fresh Economic Thinking Podcast. Cameron Murray's my name. Today I'm speaking with Pete Wardgen, property buyer and analyst. Pete and I have followed each other's uh, property analysis and writing for many years, and I've really wanted to have him on the show to just uh, shoot the breeze and find out from someone who's dealing with buying and selling property on the ground every day uh, find out his views uh, on some of the more complex issues in australian property so pete thanks for coming on the show pleasure thanks cam as you said been following your work for so many years
0: now and it's always good to chat
1: terrific so maybe uh you should introduce yourself to uh the listeners uh I can hear an accent there did you uh adopt the Aussie property culture on arrival or did you bring it with you and how did how does one get into becoming a buyer's agent and analyst what's your story Pete yeah
0: it's a good question I um yeah I'm a chartered accountant by profession I came to Australia back in the 1990s Uh, like most new arrivals went to Sydney first because that was the only place I knew and everyone I knew was from Sydney. Um, yes, yeah, so it'd be an interesting case study, actually, because um, I've kind of, uh, people talk about uh, sort of investment bubbles and things like that. Well, I, I'd be a very good uh, case study for that, because like a lot of people, I went to work in uh, the mining sector during the resources construction boom, and then later mm-hmm. on, segwayed into a career in real estate. So I guess you could say, uh, in some ways, I have followed the big Aussie trends in that regard. Um, yeah, and um, I guess I've always had a, an interest in economics and uh, particularly housing market economics, um, but it's quite a well-trodden path these days. Uh, when I started out, there were very few buyers agents in Australia, uh, maybe half a dozen in Sydney, but these days they're everywhere. So I guess, uh, yeah, I've been uh, sort of leading and following some of those uh, trends that are so common in the media.
1: Mm. So so tell me more about a buyer's agent, because this is not a common thing in Australia. But from my understanding, in the United States, it is common for buyers of property to get their own agent and for that buyer's agent to deal with the seller's agent and have sort of two agents involved in the transaction. Um, is is that becoming more the case here? And why why would I want to do that?
0: Yes, you're right. So in the US, depending on which state, it's not the same in everywhere in the US, but um, very common for a buyer to engage a real estate agent to help them in some cases with the search, but most often with the transaction uh, part of buying a property. It's been far less common in uh, the UK and Australia. So um, it took off, I guess, in London a couple of decades ago, and then Sydney has followed. Um, And it's, I guess the general idea is, um, you know, a bit like you you only sort of... um, uh, buy property potentially a few times in your life, so you want to get those big decisions right. And the idea is to level the playing field by having a professional on your side of the transaction, because of course the real estate agent is working for the seller or the vendor. So, uh, yeah, now um, in Australia most people work on a fixed fee for service as buyers agents. Slightly different model in the US where uh, the commission tends to be split. Uh, but it's, I think it's becoming more popular, particularly as people move or invest interstate. Uh, we've mm. got different uh laws rightly or wrongly real estate laws are different in every state and territory so um, having a familiar or familiarity with the uh, the market and the laws that you're buying under tends to be a good thing so yeah it's increasing but it's still
1: only probably about two to three percent of transactions involved with buyers agents in Australia right um and and is that so is that up from zero percent how how long ago do you think it was zero percent 20 years ago in the 2000s. Well, it's very,
0: unlike mortgage broker, there's very few statistics on this. And yeah. there's uh, it's very difficult to actually get a handle on percentages because it's not formally recorded anywhere. If you look at the ABS or the RBA, there's no statistics on it. Um, so best estimates are around 3%. And yeah, I guess if you went back to uh, the Sydney Olympics, there would have been very few transactions going through uh, with the buyers agent back then. So yeah, broadly from nothing to about 3%. But yeah, it's a, bit, a lot of finger-in-the-air stuff because um, uh, you see a lot of buyers agents operate under a full real estate license, so the, the figures uh-huh. just aren't well picked up anyway.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's an interesting trend to to watch out for. So, I, I imagine as a buyers agent, you are dealing with selling agents and buyers and s- sellers sometimes directly every day of the week uh tell me what's happening on the ground now were you for example um when interest rates were rising up until uh you know a few months ago in the first half of this year a lot of the property sort of commentary online had their various views but i think you know dealing with transactions day-to-day might give you a slightly different insight so were you able to sort of see this surprise second wave um before a lot of the commentary in the media and and what are you seeing now perhaps that's coming along that isn't quite uh, being talked about yet i think it probably depends on where you are in the country
0: so you and i are oh. in southeast queensland where there is a real uh shortage of housing and we've got still a very very high net interstate migration particularly to southeast queensland so um yes i mean even at this weekend just gone uh, we've had um our buyers agents going to open homes um places like Tawong, 100 buyers going through i mean it's um it's almost like boom like conditions but i would say that's probably not the the case everywhere in the country if you went to canberra or darwin you'd probably be seeing something different and i'm fairly sure a lot of the regional markets that got overheated uh through that rush to the regions through the covid period yeah, they would be calling too. So, I mean, generally speaking, at the macro level, there's a shortage of stock. Uh, so, not many mm. vendors have had the confidence to list, and I think uh, quite a lot of homeowners are actually a bit wary um, of selling because they're worried about not finding somewhere to move to. Paradoxically, right. so yeah, it's been a it's been a very unusual few years, and you can't really sort of look back at previous cycles and uh, sort of make direct comparisons because so we've had so many unprecedented changes in recent years with border closures and then the, the stimulus package uh, with job keeper and, and now the borders reopening and record immigration again um so yeah I, I think if you'd gone back 15 months ago and said that the cash rate target would be above four percent you'd have expected a lot more fallout than there has been and i guess that's a yeah. function of record population growth a lot of builders struggling and going insolvent and um I think people are actually looking ahead, potentially to the peak of the interest rate cycle, and um, just worrying about the the housing shortage. So yeah, it's very unusual, uh, but certainly in Brisbane and southeast Queensland, the, yeah, there's um, a lot of buying activity and almost a fear of missing out, which is quite unexpected.
1: Wow! And um, can you speculate? Uh, do you talk to many sellers about? their hesitation so I guess one interesting pattern I've noticed in the data is that um turnover of property so the proportion of property that actually sells in a year um you know it used to be a lot higher until the early 2000s and since the 2000s boom has dropped substantially and you're suggesting that recently people are um relatively cautious about about selling and is that because people already sold and relocated during COVID, and so that we're in this shadow of you know people brought forward decisions and now you know there's there's not much trade happening and we've got more buying and interest can you speculate on that or do you know if you had any conversations recently yeah for
0: sure I think if you if you look at the the multi-decade trend and this is something the groups like REA and Domain have been very keen to understand because it's absolutely critical to their business. Mm, well, that's right. I think if you went back, sort of seven or eight years ago, um, the housing turnover declined because we had a, a huge boom in apartment construction. So a lot of buyers went towards new dwellings rather than uh, the existing stock. Um, but I think uh, if you look sort of over a longer time frame, well, the average holding period um, has increased quite significantly, and I think that's partly a function of stamp duty and transaction costs i think mm-hmm. um a lot of those stamp duty brackets were designed with lower property prices in mind and uh if you're looking at upgrading to a let's say a 2 or 3 million dollar home in sydney or melbourne there's a serious disincentive to be, to be buying and selling too often there so i think a lot of people are staying in situ because of that as well and i think in recent times yeah it's just a confidence thing there's very little quality stock on the market, at least in the capital cities, and that's uh, disincentivizing people from selling because they're worried about um, actually finding somewhere to move to. I've actually got clients who are keen to buy uh, or upgrade mm. in places like Perth, but they just, you know, they say, well, there's no stock on the market, so I'm not selling my place. And um, yeah, so that's the that's dynamic um, that's, uh, that's certainly
1: underway at the moment. I've always found this interesting, the dilemma of buying to and selling at the same time. There's some kind of art. So maybe some listeners don't know, but I used to work in real estate, tried my hand at selling houses and being a property manager and all that. And um, it was always a trick when a buyer needed to sell a place and a seller wanted to buy a place at the same time and trying to triangulate those transactions because no one had any money except what was in their house and you know sometimes financing was difficult do you think do you think that's getting easier do you think it's getting easier in 2023 compared to when I was trying to sell houses in 2003 to um sort of buy and sell uh without having to rent or you know take 12 months or more to to do it and You know, are are there bridging loans? I'm just curious if it's better or whether it's still difficult.
0: I think it's difficult at the moment because stock levels are low. But I think if you got stock back into a level of equilibrium, I would say that the Australian system is pretty good overall. It's never going to be easy. But if you compare to, well, let's say the UK where I'm originally from, um, Mm -hmm. over there you can end up with, um, they have a system where, Effectively, the buyers and sellers get into a chain, and you might have multiple buyers and sellers in a chain yeah. system. And and if one person pulls out, or if there's a you know the mortgage falls over, or whatever the case may be, but you can see the whole thing just blows up, and then you're back to square one. And it can take um, you know, as you said, it could take a year that circumstance for people to move. And it's it's such a serious disruption. Um, well, for yeah. everybody in the process, the conveyancers and solicitors are taking months over a transaction. Um, it's really, I mean, it's not great for labor force mobility. It's really difficult for people to get on with their lives, at least in Australia. I mean, let's say Queensland, you generally got 14 days to do your due diligence and 30 days to settle. So um, yeah. yeah, that can bring its own challenges. And sometimes we find that vendors uh, actually rent back uh, the property uh, yeah. That they've sold for a period of time until they can move on to the next place, but at least it gets done quickly. Uh, New yeah. South Wales, forty-two days, um, so it's never going to be perfect, but um, certainly compared
1: to the British system, it's uh, it's a million miles apart. Right. So, you, so most people who buy, who sell and buy to upgrade, either. Um, buy a second home first and then happen to own two at the same time and before they sell the first one or they rent back the place they've sold or they move and rent and shop around for six or 12 months and then buy again that's there's there's no um you know better alternative really it's very rare to be able to buy and sell and move directly into your place is that still the case
0: it's pretty tricky yes and i would say at the moment it's very difficult because um, if a if a quality uh, sort of uh, family appropriate property comes up for sale, there's likely to be multiple buyers interested in that property. So there's no certainty of getting that property yeah. bought, and therefore um, people are quite unwilling to list their own property until they've got some more clarity. So yeah, I mean it's it's never going to be ideal, uh, but I'd say the Aussie system overall is is certainly much better than you'd see overseas. So um, yeah, I, I think I mean the big the big real challenge is, I would say, stamp duty, uh, especially in Sydney and Melbourne, because it's just such a, it's becoming a disincentive for people to transact. So um, that will, uh, well, it's, it's been looked at and it has been looked at for a long time with a potential switch to land tax, but it seems to be happening at a glacial pace, shall we say.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always think with stamp duty, you know, Canberra's wound back its stamp duty significantly and increased land taxes. And I, I wonder how much different things are there really um, at the end of the day. Is it still hard to buy and sell and trade there? Is there still no quality stock? Do you, do you buy and sell in Canberra? I don't know. Uh, I haven't been to Canberra for a
0: little <laughs> while actually uh, for various yeah. reasons. So uh, yeah, I, I, so I'm not actually sure how the market Dynamic is playing out there. I think it's softening. Um, yeah, it's, and um, yeah, I mean, it's it's always it's a fascinating housing market in its own right. Because if anywhere in the country uh, should have some land available to be built on it, you would think it would be the ACT. And yet, we always seem to be talking about a shortage of housing. So, um but I guess
1: yeah, that's another topic which will no doubt well, come onto To well, let's let's uh, I've got a couple of things before I get on there because uh, you, you sent me a message about. Uh, a regional renaissance, uh, in housing solutions. But before we get onto that, just flagging for the listeners, um, there's a lot of talk. Uh, so there's two more things I want to talk about foreign buyers and snobbery. Okay. Foreign buyers. Are they back? Uh, I'm seeing some data that they're back. Is that a new thing? Have you noticed? Is it a Sydney centric thing? What's your impression Uh, on the ground?
0: Yes. I think, I think, um, Yes, foreign buyers definitely increasing. And the surveys generally, um, so NAB, for example, would pick this up in their surveys. And it it kind of makes sense. I think we've got record low vacancy rates. Uh, We've also seen the return of international students, which is another pathway for Mm. international funds. Now, yes, you'd be interested, actually, some years ago, um, I got a phone call from the ATO who were talking about... um, (laughs) Foreign investment in Australian real estate. And I almost had a heart attack because I was thinking, well, you know, I've been uh, somehow implicated in You're some kind busted. of uh, <laughs> yeah, money laundering scheme. And in fact, I I'd, only that week I'd done a piece in the Finn Review, which um, almost implied something similar. But anyway, it, it was actually just a, a discussion because the ATO at the time was doing, um, at the behest of the government, uh, an investigation into. Uh, the pathways of of uh, where foreign capital comes in. Now, I guess if you're not familiar in Australia, unlike in, uh, let's say, London, uh, foreign buyers can generally only buy new property. Uh, and sometimes they can buy development sites if they're going to add to the housing stock. Uh, but certainly, if you went back um, a decade ago, there was a lot of, um, in particular, money from China finding its way into established real estate as well, which was the... Uh, purpose of the investigation, I guess, to see where and how mm-hmm. that was happening. Mm. Um, so these surveys, yeah, there's always this uh, question about well, how much of this, uh, f- how much of the funds are going into new housing and how much is finding in its way uh, to establish real estate and um, are those buyers actually qualified? Well, the surveys are a bit vague on that. Um, mm. But of course, you know, in th- these days, you know, capital is much more fluid and um, well, well, there's a million australians of chinese descent or heritage now so there's plenty of ways that money can find its way in and it does seem i guess with the return of international students that that's happening again so um yeah there's always that debate as to how much it is sort of uh, going into new housing and, and established but it does seem to be on the increase at least
1: yeah no it's it's a very interesting one i think in the 2010s boom know foreign buying was a huge part of the you know apartment construction story in sydney and melbourne because um a foreign buyers you know had an easier time buying new and off the plan housing um and you know in the process of all that demand not only did they stimulate construction activity but also prices and there was a lot of debate and i remember in uh in Canada, I think they created a foreign buyer surcharge, like an extra stamp duty or an extra um, tax on foreign buying. And then they created a a vacancy tax. So foreign owners with vacant residential property paid a premium. And I think, you know, three quarters of the revenue they raised from their vacancy tax were from foreign buyers. Um, But it's interesting because I think yeah that had a big effect on the market but then during COVID, we just reduced interest rates and sort of rescued those high prices and and then it became sort of an aussie (laughs) driven boom after that so as much as we complain about it you know we have this weird situation where if the economy turns bad we bail out the housing market anyway um and so as much as you wanted to blame foreign buyers we kind of liked those high prices anyway, and and when prices were threatened to fall, we we wanted to keep them up. So it's it's a, well, it's really a good point you make
0: because there's a lot of talk at the moment about the undersupply of housing, and as you said, the the previous construction boom, which was actually the biggest cyclical boom we've ever seen in mm-hmm. Australia, it was largely driven by investment from overseas, particularly from mainland China, uh, because on a, you know most Aussies don't like to buy new apartments. We know statistically the loss on resale is higher if you buy a brand new apartment because you tend to pay a price premium effectively the developers profit and then when you come to sell it's a secondhand property no longer got that newness premium but a lot of um uh, sort of capital flight from China fueled the previous construction boom and then Australia New South Wales introduced a stamp duty surcharge for non-residents Victoria did the same and that basically killed it off and we haven't we've never reinvigorated uh, the sort of foreign buying of new apartments, which, of course, uh, you know, there's always this debate about is it the right quality of stock? But I guess the thing is, if you get a, a large supply of new housing, even mm-hmm. if it's only uh, largely suitable for renters, it does have a, a knock-on impact uh, yeah. to the the rest of the housing market. So you would think um, that, you're right, speculative vacancies were an issue uh, for non-resident buyers. But if you want to stimulate housing supply, why are we turning away foreign capital for new apartments Uh, i get i'm surprised it hasn't had a look in again but uh, for the time being it's it's just not happening
1: yeah well i think your point there is that quantity has a quality all of its own when it comes to these apartments and you know uh i think at the moment it it wouldn't really make a huge difference because we're simply at the limits of the construction sector currently right so you know yeah i i I know a bunch of property developers who have well pre-sold um Buildings and they have just got them on hold because they just can't find a builder who they think can finish a building uh at the moment. So, so that's going to take a couple of years to wash out of the system. You know that disruption. Sorry, I'm going to go on a rant here for a couple of minutes, but you know that stimulus runs away. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's my podcast. This is my chance, right? <laughs> that stimulus we had during COVID, the the renovators, what, what do they call it? The um, two construction grants we had what was they called again pete off oh, my mind uh
0: there was uh, well there was the home builder stimulus that's for right. new homes and then there was also a renovation uh stimulus package as well
1: that's right and I, I do feel like the the money that just got thrown at housing and the low interest rates during COVID were are very unnecessary in retrospect and very disruptive simply because of the size of the stimulatory effect right and and the construction sector during a lockdown with global supply chain issues with sourcing all your bits and pieces was never going to be able to just pump out you know triple the number of dwellings so I think I, I my rant here is going to finish I hope in retrospect we learn from that and we don't just try next time there's a big global upheaval to over stimulate housing construction uh during that period because I I think uh, it would have been better to, to to hold back then and we might have had a more um, stable construction market today. Do, would you think that's right or do you have a different view, Pete?
0: Yes, I do agree. I, I think it's interesting if you look back at the time, a few of the uh, Labour MPs were saying uh, this is going to be a visa, it's not going to work. But actually, we've seen time and time again, if you give people free money, they spend it. It gives people access to free uh you know we've seen this in western yeah. australia before there were grants for new housing construction and people snapped them up so uh yes and actually it's been a big part of the inflation story has been the cost of new dwellings. so um, now i guess officially in the cpi figures they were up over 20 percent uh year on year at the peak um, but actually if you look at the uh the cost of delivering a medium density or higher density project well they're up 50 percent since pre-covid so Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge part of the inflation story at a time when as you said supply chains were were stuffed um and uh, New Zealand had similar issues um, even without yeah. the same stimulus packages so yeah and um I think as you said um this probably uh, goes back to your point on zoning but um yeah there's plenty of uh, projects that could be uh constructed but at the moment there's uh, there's no incentive to do so a lot of yeah. developers are insolvents are on the borderline of insolvency Um, and yeah paradoxically a lot of them the more they build the more money they're losing so um, a lot of them are shutting up shop until the next cycle now
1: that's right i think people do underestimate that cycle and i've talked to Catherine cashmore on the show before about the cycles so let's um then talk about what are the issues in housing and what are you know this regional renaissance uh uh investment in infrastructure tech and schools so people seem to have a real issue there's some kind of crisis right now i tweeted the other day that you can buy a two-bedroom apartment half an hour train ride from sydney for three hundred and seventy thousand. and i do wonder if part of what we call the crisis is just housing snobbery we all just want to live in the best places and we just don't want to live near poor people and how much is is real and and what could we do about it um you wanted to talk about this the middle stand economies and uh this new wave what what are, what are your thoughts pete what what should we be doing and how should we be thinking about what people are calling the current housing crisis well
0: look, there's a few different things here firstly i think the property in question you mentioned was in Lakemba, um so yeah. a two-bed apartment um look, Lakemba's, uh, i used to love the lead bread you could buy down there but I guess the issue there yeah, is you know, two-bedroom apartments for a young family or a growing family uh, don't necessarily fit the bill. So um, there's definitely a question about the type of properties we're talking about because you're right, there are cheap apartments, particularly in Melbourne, actually. If you go to a place like El- Elwood or the Docklands or even around the CBD, there's plenty of cheap units. But what really people want often is a detached home with a picket fence, you know, a backyard and a hills hoist and a barbecue. Um, And, well, look, I think we need to stop pretending that we can manage that sustainably in, you know, Leichhardt or Newtown or Erskineville as the population grows. And, look, immigration settings is another part of that story because there's simply too many people and not enough space. Now, it might be possible in, let's say, Camden Park South or something, but that's 65 clicks out of Sydney and not everyone wants to be out there but look the pandemic has unexpectedly presented us with a golden opportunity for employees to show that they can work productively and flexibly both from home as you're doing right now and so am i mm-hmm. and also close to home so there's a real opportunity to be embraced here to create a vision for dynamic regional living so yeah of course uh, the capital cities have got cert- certain unique benefits you know the frequency of interactions and the the concentration of skills you would probably say economies of scale mm-hmm. as an economist and you know they talk about uh the potential for serendipitous events and all that kind of thing but instead of trying to work out how we can cram 40 million people into sydney melbourne and the southeast queensland coastal strip it, it, surely the aim should be to create a bigger and more enlightened vision for dynamic and thriving regional cities am i wrong
1: Uh, That makes total sense to me. Um, I think, for example, we always talk about high-speed rail from Sydney to Melbourne, right, connect the three cities. And I'm like, wouldn't a regional rail network, if you have to come to the office three days a week, but you can get a high-speed rail from the Sunshine Coast or uh, Gympie to Brisbane, wouldn't that make the regions attractive to a more diverse range of um, businesses and different households um so I, I i'm totally with you that um regionalization or, or or somehow directing public funds to promoting these towns makes sense i think as an economist i'll put my economist hat back on you just can't fight economies of scale sometimes right like big regions attract people which make them more attractive and so on and um if you look at any Country, you know form like china any any country that's modernized and marketized um all you see are people flood from small towns to cities (laughs) um and so fighting that economic force with public policy is it enough to just build some trains real fast nice convenient trains is that enough or do you need to also shift um, public services there, public government departments. I mean, Canberra is 100 years old, and we shifted the whole federal government there. There's only 300,000 people. Oh, it's 450,000 now, right? But that's an 100-year project with the might of the federal government. And you can say, oh, okay, it kind of worked. Are we going to be able to do that, you know, in Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland as well? that That's my dilemma that we're, we're you know, as much as I, I think improving regional transit is great but there's still those um, economic forces
0: yeah look I, I tend to agree up to a certain point now and australia is one of the most urbanized countries in the world as we always hear and look the uk has similar challenges with the the london southeast effect but then we had this stupid debate about we build a high-speed rail that links up london to you know leeds and birmingham and instead of thinking well why can't we actually decentralize and invest in Leeds, Birmingham, uh, Manchester, and Liverpool, North West Hub. Yeah, and, you know, I've got a a list in my head of maybe two dozen regional cities that could benefit. Now, if your point is that we need to be, you know, in some way linked to the capital cities, I mean, actually Infrastructure Australia would agree with that to a certain extent, Mm -hmm. in which case the focus should probably be on those peri-urban locations. So Bendigo, Ballarat, Geelong and yeah. uh, Newcastle and Wollongong and then up our way to Womba, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast because those areas are all within a two-hour striking distance of the big capital cities and um, you could probably throw in uh, some parts of WA as well there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I probably would expand the list ideally to a, a bigger range of uh, regional cities but, it, I mean, if you look at a place like Newcastle, um place is booming. There's no reason why it can't be an extension of uh, Greater Sydney, in effect. So, yeah, I mean, there is there is always that, um, that challenge in that most new arrivals, in particular, uh, go mm-hmm. to Sydney and Melbourne. Um, and I think, look, there, there is also this kind of rebuttable presumption that we actually want to fix the housing market and supply. I, I recently spoke at an event in uh, Brisbane, and the, the subject was housing supply. But when I looked around the room, there was the housing minister... There was developers there, but also, you know, property managers, real estate agents, buyers agents. And to be honest, most of them had a vested interest in the status quo. And maybe Mm. the market's working just fine for many, if not most people. So, but assuming you do want to bring about change, then surely a a level of decentralization, particularly now that the pandemic has showed that more people can work from from home, or that, that could be something that's promoted. Now, I suppose you could say, now, why don't we live in? Somewhere like Toowoomba, I guess in my case, because I want to be near the beach. But you know, what what do you need to do to make those cities, yeah. you know, create a buzz or excitement? Well, you need really good employment and shopping hubs, um, high speed internet and telephone connectivity. But you know, people like to see things, you know, really great schools, healthcare, transport, as you mentioned, the sort of road, rail and airport stuff. But you, you generally you need to create a vision. And a sense yeah. that, hey, something's really happening here, making a place that people really want to be.
1: Yeah, uh, look, I, I, I think, I think we're on board, and I think this has been somewhat part of many plans for a long time. Uh, I know the Southeast Queensland Regional Plan is very much about all the hubs in the region and promoting them. One thing I noticed though is this competition between these areas, Well, this let me. Make two points. Firstly, we did regionalize automatically during COVID, and the result was all the regions got expensive. <laughs> so the question is, how much is that of that is going to um, a take pressure off infrastructure in the cities and make just infrastructure investment more efficient, and how much is going to change the cost of housing? Um, I think they're independent questions. The other thing is about, and and I'm going to bring it back to the snobbery question. I was out at Ipswich the other day, and I just thought mate, this is so convenient to Brisbane. It's like a half-hour drive, train lines well-connected, houses are dirt cheap. I almost felt like I should move there. Um, But, you know, there's a sort of cultural snobbery of that's where, you know, poor people live. I don't want to be um, part of that working-class culture. Do you think that is an issue as well, or do you think the economics overrides that over time and places gentrify and change?
0: I think they do gentrify. Yeah, to your point on the, uh, regional price boom. Well, we do have, despite the home builder stimulus, we've got a relatively inelastic housing supply. I think that's become more so the case over the rest, uh, sort of the recent cycles because we've got more apartment projects these days, and they can take, you know, two or three years to be constructed instead of say a year or less for for detached mm-hmm. housing. But actually. Yes, in those thinner or more illiquid markets, it takes a relatively smaller change in the number of people moving in to see prices go sky high. And it, it, see, I live at Noosa and we saw a massive influx of people uh, from particularly Victoria, but also uh, New South Wales and um, yeah, famously a lot of NIMBYism in the Sunshine Coast as well. Yeah, uh, But yeah, there, there was no way that the housing supply could respond that quickly in the short run. But I guess like over time, you would think, uh, regional markets, there's a lot more land available for release. I think actually in a lot of the tree change markets, prices are uh, steadily, at least, coming back down. So, yeah, in theory, housing supply um, yeah should respond in time. I think you're right. There is a a, a level of snobbery um, <laughs> uh, that's not not unique to Australia, of course, but that that can change yeah. over time as well. Um, but uh, I think um, yeah, generally uh, when you do get sort of an uplift in supply, you know, it, it has a sort of a, a effect at the macro level across the whole market. So, you know, generally a cheaper area will eventually fill up. You know, we saw that with the the oversupply of building in Brisbane seven or eight years ago. Mm. Is that generally, when the rents fell, then people were happy to move in and eventually the market finds a new level.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I think over time, like, you you know, we got to understand that the supply comes in cycles. So there definitely are periods where, you know, it dampens rental growth, but then the dampened rental growth slows the next wave of supply. And then we rinse and repeat that cycle the next time. Look, I don't think we're going to solve housing on this conversation, Pete, but I think you've definitely got me thinking about a lot more of the details. Maybe you can share with the listeners where they can uh, find your writing. I know you've got a podcast and what's the best way to uh, keep up to date with your analysis of the property market?
0: Uh, Yeah, I write a daily blog, uh, Pete Origin Blogspot, or you can find me on Twitter. So, uh, or PeteWorgin.com, plenty of places to find me. I'm fairly active online. And uh, yeah, there's always a healthy debate going on on social media. So come and join the fun.
1: Yeah, that's great. And if you need a buyer's agent, maybe your first stop should be to talk to Pete as well. Um, you know, buying a house, uh, I like to say in the property, everyone lives in a house, so they think they know about the market and they can understand sort of the macro level view of housing just because they live in a house or well, they've paid the rent. But, uh, you know, it does take years of experience to really um you know have a good understanding of of what's happening and what things affect the market so look pete i really appreciate your time we should definitely do this again and thanks for coming on
0: pleasure thanks Captain.